I was summoned to the ward by a respiratory physician to see this poor man who had very widespread lung cancer. And his family were all standing there. And the respiratory physician said, well, do something. That's all he could say to me. He kept saying, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. And I'm thinking, this guy's dying. From the RACP, welcome to Pomegranate, a new medical podcast created by physicians for physicians. In this, our first program, we're starting at the end with a look at end-of-life care and decision-making. It's a hard topic to discuss with patients, maybe the hardest, but it may also be the most important conversation we're not having. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with intensivists and palliative care physicians about why we need to talk about death and how to start and document these discussions. Whether you respond with grace, panic, black humour or dread, dying is a part of life and that matters. So keep listening as we discuss recognising death. I think definitely the specialist can start the conversation around the time of diagnosis. So, for example, if you're diagnosing someone with renal failure, you can point out that this will eventually catch up with them. And even though you're starting dialysis now, there is a point in time when you will be stopping dialysis. And you can flag likely issues that need to be thought about. And that doesn't mean that you have to be depressing. It doesn't mean that you have to take away all hope. I think a lot of the time people worry about if I hit them with the word that they may be dying, I will remove all hope and curse them to a terrible last months or years of life. But you're giving them the hope of a better death. And that's not a small thing to be sneezed at. That's actually a really big thing. The hope of the best death possible is a really good outcome. And it's an excellent clinical outcome that we should be aiming for. My name is Amanda Walker. I'm a palliative care specialist from southwestern Sydney, but I also work at the Clinical Excellence Commission, which is the peak quality and safety body in New South Wales, as the clinical lead for the end of life program. So, my name is Peter Saul. I'm a senior specialist in intensive care for the Hunter Local Health District, and I work both at John Hunter and at the Calvary Martyr Hospitals. My own approach to communicating about end of life is not to think of it as breaking bad news. I actually think that frames it badly. I think if you frame it as telling the truth with kindness, it probably comes over as a slightly better than breaking bad news makes it sound like. My own approach is take a structured approach. I actually think that communication skills revolves around taking it as seriously as you would take anything else. There is one key that is common to all structured approaches, and that's the dominance of listening rather than talking. I think if you find yourself listening 75% of the time, you're winning. Associate Professor Charlie Cork, I'm talking to you from Barwon Health. I think the important thing for everybody to do when you're talking to patients about what they're hoping for is just to ask the next question, which is what they're hoping, really hoping to avoid, because that gives you some balance. And the second that you start that, it's all easy. Whenever my registrars are saying, you know, I want some help and I'm going to talk to somebody, what shall I say? I say, well, why don't you speak to me? I'll be the husband or I'll be the wife or I'll be the the daughter and you talk to me and tell me what you're going to say. 
And when they do that, it's entirely safe and it's very, very easy to stop and run back and do it again. This is the best simulation we can possibly do. It's the easiest simulation and the cheapest. So just over a cup of coffee, just do it as if you're going to do it. Do it with anybody. There is a major myth abroad in medicine generally about end-of-life care and planning, and that's that it's somebody else's problem. Almost all the physicians that I've interviewed and that we've interviewed as part of projects have always imagined that somebody else was talking to the patient about end-of-life. So we did focus groups with GPs who all thought that specialists in hospital were having deep and meaningful conversations with patients in outpatient clinics, and they aren't. When we interviewed the specialists, they all thought the GPs were receiving the letters and immediately summoning the patients and having end-of-life conversations, and they aren't. The big myth is that somebody else out there is looking after dying patients, and they aren't. So actually the bottom line is that, you know, it really is your job. What I would love to see is for people owning the space and owning uncertainty and having conversations even if they don't know exactly what the answer or the outcome is going to be. Because really most of the time, most clinician experts do have a sense of what could happen. And there's probably only one, two or three different options. But because it's all on a spectrum, we tend to keep working towards the best, which is the patient improves and gets better and goes home, without acknowledging the possibility of deterioration until it's actually already happened. And often people will comment, but surely that's the most important thing a doctor could tell me, that I might die or that my mum might die. Of all of the pieces of information, my blood counts don't matter. That my mum could die of this illness or that she is so sick with this exacerbation that she may not leave hospital, that's really important. And for most people, that's the most important thing a clinician could communicate. A very good opening question when you don't know what else to say to somebody who you don't know and you don't know which way things are going to go is in the event that you became so unwell that you weren't able to speak for yourself who would you like us to talk to this is particularly important where guardianship legislation makes that a very important decision maker but also it seems like quite a neutral sort of thing to ask somebody it's like an information question but it's a way into having a discussion about well do you think I might end up like that and you say well you know quite a few people do and if they say well look I want my daughter to be my decision maker then you say well have you spoken to her about the sorts of things that you might want so in New South Wales in particular but probably across Australia a very safe unchallenging opening question is in the event you were too sick to speak for yourself who would you like us to speak to? We've done research with the Centre for the Study of Choice at the University of Technology in Sydney. And what we looked at was getting people to rank the hierarchy of their values. They weren't able to hold all the values together. They had to put the ones that they thought the most about above the ones that they didn't. And when we did that, we found that over 90% of people express limits to how far that they want to go with medical treatment. There's still 7% who are quite keen to go all the way. And I think that for me, that's terribly important because once I know who they are, heavens, we've got the stuff for them. This is a group that probably would go further than I would feel comfortable for myself. But that's part of being a doctor is doing stuff for people that may be more or less than you would want for yourself. And that's the art of medicine, I think. 
probably the largest ever study done into uh, advanced care planning, particularly has come through the Respecting Patient Choices program, which actually started off in the US and was brought over to Victoria by Bill Sylvester at Austin and was rolled out with federal government funding to every state and territory. And John Hunter was the test site here. What we did was to train about 200 doctors, nurses and social workers to have end-of-life conversations, two-day training program, and encourage them to try and encourage patients and their families to have conversations while they were in acute care about what they wanted to have done. The outcome was very encouraging, actually. The sorts of documents people produced were advanced care directives, broadly more advanced care plans, discussion records, statements of wishes, enduring guardianship appointments, and what, what most importantly, when we actually identified people who had died and then went back to see if they had written something, there was actually a 100% chance that their wishes would have been honoured. What we discovered was that doctors are very responsive to plans that they see the patients have. If patients say they want something, doctors are very responsive to that, an extremely encouraging sign. It was interesting that when the funding ran out, the Respecting Patient Choices program stopped and we still had the 200 trained people, but they didn't any longer feel supported in doing this. It seemed that they had to have in place support from senior staff, really ongoing encouragement to keep doing this. And that if you just left things to run as they normally do, the culture of not talking reasserts itself. It's very powerful in acute care culture of cure that you don't actually talk about people dying, you only talk about what you can do next. And within a year, I'd say, of, of finishing doing the training, pretty much everybody had dropped out and nobody was having those conversations before. Whether you write on the legal document of your state or whether you write a letter or whether you write a list of wishes or whether you just say it when you're sitting watching the TV to your family or whether you make an announcement to the family over a Christmas dinner, they're all ways of communicating information which have sort of a hierarchy of validity and importance. And when we're trying to think what to do, all of those things come into, into play. The difficulty for us is that each state does something slightly differently. Even within the states, different people respect different things to a different degree. I think one of the things that everybody should have a crack at is making their own plan. Because, you know, we talk about advanced care planning and advanced care directives. I think if you haven't had a try at it, you don't really appreciate what the problems are. It's informative in all sorts of ways to do it. And you can go to myvalues.org.au and try and do your personality. Uh, this is Charlie Cork's website. You could go to starttotalk.org and actually try filling in, registering and filling in an advanced care directive yourself. I think this would be enormously educative for people to have a crack at. It would show something about yourself, but it also shows something about how other people are trying to wrestle with this as well. I think we can borrow from our obstetric colleagues in the sense that they work with uncertainty all the time. Very few people are born on their you know, expected date of delivery. People are born sometime around then. But the important thing is that we talk to potential parents and we say these are the signs to look out for. If you start having contractions, if your waters break, these are all of the things to watch out for and you'll see changes. Let us know when you're seeing those changes or when these things start to happen, that's the time to come and see us. And in the same way, we can actually start to identify with patients with this condition. These are the signs that things are starting to change and that's when you'll know that time is getting shorter. And you actually can have some sense of what the future will hold for that person or what it's most likely to hold at least. And that actually allows patients and families to have a much stronger sense of control as things are starting to change. 
because I think control is actually one of the hardest things with an advancing disease. In terms of resources, I would suggest the next steps, which is on the Victorian government website. I would recommend Vital Talk on the Vital Talk website, which is vitaltalk.org. And in terms of a book, I would recommend Mastering Communication with Seriously Ill Patients, Balancing Honesty with Empathy and Hope by Back, Arnold and Tulsky. I think that's a really excellent. It's only a little book, but it's really good. There are reliable tools for identifying people in the last year of their lives. And one of the things that we could do that would make the biggest difference is to use them in any setting where you see somebody. You know, somebody sits across the table from you in a consultation and your thought is, could this person be in the last year of their life? If we were able to do that, and, and there are simple tests, frailty scores, their gold standards framework, SPICT tool, they're known to some but not many, but in fact they're widely applicable. If we were able to identify people who only had a year or less to live, we could attend to their special needs in a timely way. So if they hadn't thought these things through, a lot, a lot of people want to have their affairs in order, but we cheat them of that if we don't tell them that they may be dying. Just presenting three times to an ED in a year may be a simple screening tool. So I think we, we owe it to our patients to try and identify those who may be dying in the next year. A second resource is, is go looking for a structured approach to having these discussions. There are mnemonics, there's the value mnemonic from the US, there's Charlie Cork's system. I actually feel like no matter how experienced you are, you're always better if you go in there knowing how you're going to introduce the subject and how you're going to conclude the conversation and something about what might happen in between. Death is a human experience and it's going to happen to absolutely everyone and it's the one universal health outcome. It's kind of well, you could say sad, you could also say pathetic, that we pretend that that's not the case. Because when you stop to think about what patients most need from their clinicians, it's realistic information that gives them fair warning, that gives them an opportunity to prepare for their dying. People often worry that that's depressing, that that's going to be negative, that person will lose hope. But in fact, the evidence seems to suggest that having open, good conversations about this opens up opportunities for people to live better and to better savour every moment that they have. Many thanks to Charlie Cork, Peter Saul and Amanda Walker for the insights shared on this programme. The views expressed are their own and may not necessarily represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. You can find more information and links to all the tools and research mentioned on today's episode, including advanced care planning forms by state and country, on our website, racp.edu.au forward slash POMCAST. That's P-O-M-C-A-S-T. Let us know what you thought of this episode or share what you'd like to hear on future shows by emailing pomcast at racp.edu.au. Pomegranate comes to you from the Learning Support Unit at the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. The program is presented by Camille Merchep and produced by Anne Fredrickson. On the next episode, we'll be continuing today's discussion, looking at social and cultural aspects of end-of-life decisions, including medical culture itself.
we're dealing with families and the label that they come attached with culturally or religiously does not necessarily define them. The critically important thing is to find out what their beliefs mean to them and the terms in which they can negotiate them. Please join us. 